0: All right, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for being with us once again. This is Matt Bieber with the New Mexico Department of Health, here to introduce our three principles for today's COVID-19 vaccine update, uh, COVID-19 and, and vaccine update. Uh, as usual, we have Acting Secretary David Scrace uh, from the Department of Health. We also have Deputy Secretary Laura Patahone. And we're joined today by the PED Secretary-designate Kurt Steinhaus. Uh, So as usual, we will hear presentations from all three of our principals, followed by the Q&A session, and I'll offer our regular instructions at the top of that Q&A session. But for now, thanks for being with us, everyone, and I'll turn it over to our principals.
1: So thank you very much, Matt, and uh, we can go on to the next slide. But uh, really appreciate uh, everybody being here again today. Uh, We're glad to have our uh, cabinet secretary for the public education department here again he was here recently kurt Steinhaus with an exciting update about a pilot of a great new program going on in alamogordo and soon across the whole state uh today unfortunately after a lower day yesterday we're reporting 1166 cases 419 people in the hospital with covid which is high And unfortunately, 12 new deaths. One death is too many, 12 is 12 too many. And for every one person, there's 10 or 20 family members or friends who grieve that loss. Uh, About uh, about 6.7% of people, which is about one in 16, I think, if I'm doing my math in my head correctly, are hospitalized that get COVID. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, a small percent, 1.8% of people who get COVID die, but it's actually, among those hospitalized, it's 19%. If we go to the next slide, we're going to go to Laura, who's going to give us an exciting update on lots and lots of news on what's going on with vaccinations in the state. And then she'll hand it off to Kurt, and then I'll be back after that.
2: Laura. Thanks so much. Um, I'm really excited to report um, that our vaccination rates keep on going up. So 72.6% of New Mexicans are now fully vaccinated and 54.4% of New Mexicans 12 to 17 year olds are um, fully vaccinated. Um, 82.5% of New Mexicans 18 and over are partially vaccinated and 62.6% of New Mexicans 12 to 17 are also partially vaccinated. Um, And then this is exciting, 171,806 New Mexicans over the age of 18 have received their booster dose. And then next week we will have vaccine statistics for five to 11 year olds on the dashboard. So thank you again, New Mexico for getting vaccinated. We're super excited because every vaccine more is another death we can potentially prevent. Uh, Next slide. So we've seen an uptick in vaccine administration. Um, that's from boosters. And also uh, we've seen a little uptick in people getting their first um, doses as well as their um, being coming fully vaccinated. So this is exciting. And once again, we thank our whole amazing vaccine team and all the providers out there who are giving vaccines and all of you guys going out there to get vaccinated. Next slide. Um, this is a very cool slide. Um, I really like it because it says that it's a it's a slide that looks at social vulnerability index so that's an index that looks at um, who in the you know which areas in the state are most socially vulnerable. And here it shows that, you know, no matter um, you're in a high social vulnerability area or low vulnerability area, you're just as likely to get vaccinated. So once again, that's the work of everybody. And we're so glad that, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, you can still get a vaccine. Next slide. Um, Well, Here's a little update on booster dose administration. You can see that the 171,806 doses of booster doses, Um, We initially started with um, the group that were immunocompromised people being approved for the doses. Then when Pfizer doses were approved for uh, another, for 65 and over, and people 18 to 64 in higher risk uh, situations or high risk illnesses, we got more people vaccinated uh, with boosters. And then here we see um, after the three vaccines were approved for boosters, we see another uptick. So, you know, this is great because we are seeing uh, higher cases. So the more we get boosted, the more we get vaccinated with our primaries, the more we'll start to be able to end this pandemic. So thank you. Next slide. Um, Okay, so this is the moment I think many of us have been waiting for. Um, Five to 11 year old vaccines have been approved. Um, You can see that there are very many steps that we had to go through for safety purposes. Um, And uh, yeah, here we are. So I know a lot of us who have five to 11 year olds are super excited or uh, people who have friends that have five to 11 year olds or grandkids. This is a really great moment for us. So next slide. And I don't have a 5 to 11-year-old, but I do have friends who have them. And I know a lot of my doctor friends are super excited about this. And I know I was super excited when my kids got vaccinated. So um, did you want to add something, David?
1: Yeah, Laura, I don't normally interrupt you, but I was talking to my son in Michigan this morning. And we have uh, he has two sons, and I have two grandsons of his that... Uh, are between five and 11, and they both have their appointments set up for early next week to be vaccinated. So all we have left in this grace brood of grandkids is the two really young ones, two and four, but the four-year-old's parents are counting the days until she turns five and can get vaccinated as well. So sorry for bursting in, but I'm one of those people who's really excited as well.
2: I am super glad you burst in. I think this is really exciting for a lot of people who have five to 11-year-olds. So um, it's now available, the five to 11-year-olds for New Mexicans. Um, The CDC actually estimates that um, for every um, 10 children we vaccinate, we actually can prevent a single case of COVID-19 in another child. Um, The Pfizer dose for the children, it's a smaller dose. So it's a third of the adult dose. And it's similar to the adult doses that you get two doses of the Pfizer vaccine with three weeks in between each dose in order to become fully vaccinated. And um, vaccines for the five to 11 year olds are being delivered to New Mexico. So there's some um, slots available right now, but we're waiting um, for providers to get all their vaccine By the 10th, we should have all the doses. So um, please be patient um, as we go through this process um, as doses begin to arrive into the state. Um, You'll be able to see more and more scheduled appointments available as as the week goes by. Next slide. Um, What's really exciting is is that we really um, have a lot of data on the vaccine showing how effective it is Um, Looking at adolescents, 12 to 18-year-olds, who, you know, we still need more um, adolescents vaccinated, but we've seen that vaccination reduces your risk for COVID-19 hospitalization by 93%, and we also saw that in the children vaccines for the 5 to 11, that um, it was 90% effective in preventing COVID. Um, This is really important because even though children don't usually get as sick, there are still children who can get sick from COVID and get hospitalized. And even five children have died in New Mexico. So we really want to prevent that. Um, You can see in this that none of the kids that got vaccinated with um, COVID for who are adolescents actually ended up in the ICU. So really good data to show that um, this is super safe for our kids. Next slide. Um, one other cool thing that they found in the study that they did to you know make sure the vaccine was safe was that side effects in five to 11 year olds are milder, milder than in older children. So these are the common side effects that kids get, and it just shows that the vaccine is working. Um, but that's that's pretty cool that it's less you know it's more mild than older children and it's probably because of the smaller dose that the kids are getting. Next slide. Um, You can register your child today, or if you haven't already registered them at VaccineNewMexico.org slash kids. Um, As a parent or guardian, you can link your child's profile to um, your own profile and manage your child's profile on their behalf, including updating their profile information, scheduling their appointments, and completing their parental consent forms. Um, Scheduling opened this morning and already thousands of uh, parents uh, have gotten appointments for their kids, so that's super exciting. Next slide. Um, there's a there's a little instruction um, page on vaccinenewmexico.org/slash/slash/kids where it shows you how to link um, your profile to your kids' profile. And, uh, you know, of course, full vaccination, as you know, five to 11 year olds are the first priority, as well as other people who aren't vaccinated, because um, it's still the best way for us to prevent hospitalizations and deaths. You can make your appointment today if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet at VaccineNewMexico.org, or you can set schedule an appointment with your primary care provider or a pharmacy. Um, remember that you can get a flu shot or any other shot at the same time and uh, talk to your provider. Um, If you do have questions about the vaccine or eligibility for a booster dose, we're just really encouraging people to get out there and get vaccinated right now. Next slide. Um, Our call center is still here for New Mexicans that don't have an access to the website. Um, The purpose of the call center as usual is really to advance equity by supporting people who don't have internet or the capacity to schedule online. So if you do option three or nine, it, call, um, it helps people get to a Spanish speaker and we're open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So once again, please just use it if you don't have access to a website. Um, if you can do it on the web, that really helps our team. So thanks again for all you guys are doing and um, yeah, get out there and, and hopefully get vaccinated. Thanks. And then now I'm gonna turn it over to, um, yeah, our awesome secretary of uh, the education department, Kurt Steinhaus.
3: Laura, thank you so much. Um, and thanks for that um, great report. I'm happy to share that just two days ago, I got my Moderna booster shot and um, I found the Department of Health uh, registration site to be um, really easy to use. Um, My um, pleasurable job this afternoon is to talk about a new program that is a huge partnership with schools across New Mexico, the Department of Health and the Public Education Department. We call it Test to Stay. And it's um, a part of us moving forward with the goal we've had from the very first day of school. And that's to provide in-person learning as much as we possibly can. And I'm happy to report that's working really well. This test to stay program um, is brand new and it's gonna take some time. Our school districts will be uh, taking training. They'll be getting certified. In some cases, they might even be hiring staff. So it's gonna take three, four or five weeks uh, for this to get up and running. But we thought it would be important for you all to know about it. On the next slide, it gives you a quick summary of what this thing is all about. So we sometimes call it in short terms, just T2S. And it allows unvaccinated students and staff who've been exposed to COVID-19 somewhere in the school to actually stay in school and not have to quarantine. That's the basic part of it. So it does, if it's when it's working, it replaces the 10 day quarantine. It um, um, is a part of Uh, a a one, three, and five-day testing program that we'll be following. And um, if the tests are negative and the individuals asymptomatic, um, that student or that staff member can stay in school. And the other thing that a lot of our staff and parents are very excited about, not only can they stay in school, but they can also participate in all those sporting activities as well as. Um, speech and debate and band and music and theater, all those things that make school so exciting for kids. On the next slide, it gives us a quick summary of the goals. So as I've already stated, the goal is to uh, keep New Mexico students and staff safe. And that's what we're working on and we're getting better on it better every week. Uh, we wanna minimize quarantine times and we wanna keep our kids engaged in in in-person learning. That's what this is all about. The other thing that we know is that every school, every community is different and unique in some ways. And so the the flexibility that we're able to provide in this program helps us adjust for local community needs. And I'm also happy to share that on the next slide, um, we can give you an update about the community of Alamogordo Um, I was a teacher in Alamogordo for 11 years and know there's a lot of good folks down there. They volunteered last week to give this a try. And so they are finding out information about how it's working and how we might do a better job of providing training and communication. So three cheers to the Alamogordo folks. And um, they are implementing this testing program on days one, three, and five following an exposure. And that's a little bit about how it works. And on the last slide about this program, um, the next slide gives you just a little bit of information about the benefits of the program. It does not only allow us to increase in-person learning, but it allows kids to continue to ride those school buses. Um, After school and before school programs, students and staff can still participate in that. Aftercare programs, And all those wonderful extracurricular activities, and we're looking forward to working with our school districts and moving forward with this program. Also, want to share a big thank you. Sometimes when you've got a new program like this, it comes down to one really hardworking person that is the key to making this happen. And Dr. Tom Massaro has been the partner at the Department of Health that's been key in getting this implemented. So, big thank you. We look forward to to working with all of our students, staff and parents and getting this implemented in the next three to five weeks. And I think it's back to Secretary Grace.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Kurt. You know, Tom Massaro is the Chief Medical Officer of the Department of Health. We're gonna be working together to get everyone trained up. Uh, In the end, I think we'll have a lot more folks able to actually stay how about kids able to stay in school and, and ride through the quarantine period safely uh, with this advanced testing program? I think there's a lot of excitement out there, but we want to take the time to get people trained so we can do it right. So, I'm going to walk through both epidemiology update and hospitalization data uh, double duty today. And so, let's move right ahead, Brianna. This is our usual uh, uh, number of cases. And you can see by um, the top is all cases and the bottom five lines are actually different regions. So there's six pieces of bad news. All six lines are headed upwards. Uh, The problem with that gray area, you know, we're not supposed to look in the gray area, but at the same time, the, the gray area can only go up. It can't go down. So we go back seven days to add cases in as we get test results back later so we're definitely on another uptick, which is not what we want to see when our hospitals are actually stressed to the maximum. On next slide, please. Uh, the whole state is pretty much red. We do have some low test positivity rates though, in Harding uh, and in Los Alamos counties. So that's good. Also, you know, any test positivity rate below 7.5 is uh, is where we want to See it So I think there's maybe six or seven or eight counties in that area, but on the total new cases per 100,000 people, we want that below uh, 10. And you can see that only one county, Los Alamos, is there now. Next slide. Uh, uh, also, our test positivity is rising. We think some of this may be due to people doing more home testing in theory, the, well, not in theory, the public health order requires reporting of all home testing, but that's can be an arduous task for somebody who just does one test at home. Some of the newer tests are set up electronically to report your results, but so we may be losing some negative tests from the denominator, but nonetheless, we don't like to see the test positivity rate almost up to 10%, and that's something that we absolutely need to see come back down uh, very soon. When we get over that green line, it means we're kiss- missing cases that we're not really getting our arms completely around all the cases occurring here in New Mexico. So that's why we'd like to continue to encourage everyone to get tested. If you have symptoms, you're exposed to someone with COVID and that applies even if you're already vaccinated. Next slide, please. Uh, in schools, Uh, Mm -hmm. Kurt went over uh, uh, the program that we're doing, had almost a thousand cases in schools last week. It's only about one sixth of cases in schools that are actually pediatric cases, which is 17 and under. We cleaned up this graph, thanks to our epidemiology folks. We took out all the adults. So these graphs look bigger, but 80 cases a week, at our peak and 50 where we are now really is only about uh, you know uh, this is the daily case rate and so that is pretty manageable here in our state and better actually than other states are seeing and as I mentioned last time you know if you remember at the beginning of the year we were seeing um, three staff cases for every single student case now it's flipped we're seeing three student cases for every staff case And we think that's mainly due to the effectiveness of vaccines and the fact that most of teachers and staff are vaccinated, the majority are, whereas of course uh, a lower percent of students are vaccinated right now. And certainly in elementary schools, uh, none of the students unless they get a vaccine today. Next slide, please. Uh, These are hospitalizations and kids. We took out the adults. You see a lot of very choppy lines there and which looks like a lot of instability, but if you go over to the left side of the graph and maybe Brianna, you can point to that y-axis, you can see that over the past, uh, basically, uh, let me look at a time period since July when Delta came through the most number of hospitalization, you know, the the highest hospitalization rate was three per 100,000, which is very, very, very low. So we're still doing very well on the kid's side of things. Uh, no children hospitalized and we think we still think that relates to our high state vaccination rate. And there have been five uh, pediatric deaths sadly, no, no new ones in recent weeks. There was one case recently where there were no underlying conditions on the death certificate, but we've reviewed those medical records and the child did have some serious uh, uh, serious underlying condition that probably in all likelihood, made them at higher risk uh, for death uh, from coronavirus infection. Next slide, please. Uh, Hospitalizations and deaths. uh, We continue to move up. Uh, Modeling is predicting an increase uh, in hospitalizations. Uh, We're moving more and more into the red. We've already declared crisis standards of care. And so hospitals continue to struggle Uh, We do have been successful in some ways of helping hospitals out that I'll get to. And just as a reminder on the left, those are the uh, different things that we're, uh, we're monitoring. And, you know, the one that's yellow, yellow, sustainment means, what that means that it's yellow is we're not sending healthcare workers with COVID into the hospital to take care of COVID patients. So thank goodness we're not doing that. Uh, I know a lot of our hospital folks feel like, you know, it's it's tough to imagine it getting any worse, but we're, we are continue in a tough situation. I would appreciate that if you don't feel like wearing a mask or getting vaccinated for yourself, it's still a great thing to do to support our hospitals and our healthcare workforce. You know, our healthcare workforce isn't just about battling the pandemic. It's about us growing old in a state where we have enough doctors and nurses and physicians assistants and nurse practitioners and respiratory therapists and all the kinds of healthcare providers we need. And believe it or not, everything we do to protect ourselves from getting COVID and ending up in the hospital actually uh, contributes to keeping that workforce around and keeping it as strong as we can. Uh, You can see we're grading ourselves every week on a zero to 40 scale and we're at 36 and a half. Uh, the highest we've ever been in the state in terms of how our hospitals are doing. We have had some success and let's go to the next slide here, please. Uh, Oh yeah, you can see still 17 beds in the ICU, 82. Those numbers are again, headed back down. Most of the time we have an open bed in the morning in an ICU, it's filled very quickly. So this is very, very uh, tight situation and you can look on the map and think about where you live in the state and where the nearest ICU bed actually is to you in that map on the left. And some New Mexicans would have to drive hundreds of miles. We're also transferring people from one place to almost the farthest away. Last week I talked about transfers from Farmington down to uh, Las Cruces. You can see they're pretty much filled in their ICU beds. So we continue to try to treat the state like a single large ICU, but that does involve extensive use of transportation resources. Next slide. We've been working aggressively with the federal government to try to request additional resources. We also have developed a contract with a staffing firm called Jogan. And you can see here that uh, we've uh, ordered up and uh, folks are on their way or already here for 196 additional healthcare workers in New Mexico. I think uh, maybe last week we showed you what the different types of healthcare workers were. This week we're showing you where they're all going to go. We do have some empty floors at Loveless, so we're trying to get extra staffing there and Loveless Hospital in Albuquerque so we can reopen those floors and have more room for hospitalized patients. Uh, 41 people to our most challenge hospital right now is Farmington. I got word this morning that they did declare crisis standards of care. And we have a federal emergency medical team coming into Farmington this week as well. We have a verbal approval for that and communications are occurring. We don't have it in writing, but we're we're confident. And so we're gonna have 36 people mainly helping in emergency rooms and general medical floors in, San Juan Regional Medical Center to help see if we can offload this incredible burden. The good news is that all of this extra staff can be paid for by federal funds. DOH is coordinating all these asks for for-profit hospitals. The non for profit hospitals can submit their own requests to FEMA, but we are finally starting to see uh, some relief from outside the state coming in. I think as other states have lesser caseloads, and New Mexico stays high, we are able to take advantage of diverting some of the staff here. And so that's that's a positive uh, development actually for our hospitals. And I was told today that uh, the folks at San Juan Regional Medical Center were, hurt, were cheering actually, uh, yesterday when they heard about the federal uh, team coming in to help as well. Next slide, please. Uh, deaths, uh, maybe some positive news here It looks like we really do have a plateau. I don't have a really good explanation for that just yet for you all, but. I wanted to mention to uh, the folks who live here in New Mexico, I mean, we've had over 5,000 people who've uh, died from COVID. And many, many of those folks are eligible, their families are eligible, sorry, for funeral assistance. And you can get monies from the federal government up to $5,000. If you already have funeral insurance, which is why uh, it's not every single person is eligible then you're not eligible but so far in new mexico 1682 people have registered so our to our media partners today if you can help us get that word out we're only uh scratching about one-third of the potential cases we'd like everybody who's eligible uh to apply uh of those 1682 just over a thousand have already gotten money and Uh, Almost all of them were approved. The only rejections I already mentioned were due to if you already having insurance benefits. So uh, we've got the application numbers here. Hopefully you've read ahead and jotted those down. You can call from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time uh, right now. And then after uh, this weekend, you can go from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time and uh, they will help you and take your application. But we encourage people who are strapped for financial resources to take advantage of this federal benefit. New paragraph. uh, Sorry, uh, new slide, please. Uh, Treatments, again, good news on the treatment front. Uh, Next slide. Uh, We've got uh, some nice work being done. Lots of remdesivir being used in the hospital, antiviral medication uh, to treat people. Almost everyone gets it a little teeny bit of a fall off uh, this past week in monoclonal antibodies, but we're doing a good job switching over to the bam Eddy combo, which gives us more flexibility as Regeneron supplies are a little bit tight right now. Again, if you have symptoms of COVID and you're COVID positive by a lab test, you're over 64 or you're obese, or you have any of the many risk factors for more serious COVID, you should really seek out uh, antibody treatment, monoclonal antibody treatment, will reduce your risk of hospitalization by 75%. That's very, very significant. Uh, Next slide, please. Uh, And then we again have some real heroes around the state, Presbyterian, Gerald Champion, Gallup Indian Medical Center, San Juan, and Carlsbad all doing a great job. You know, I know we might get a question today about uh, fluvoxamine, it's an antidepressant. There was a study done in Brazil about the effectiveness of that treatment. I'm happy to uh, take a question more specifically, but I think there's a lot of debate in the scientific community. It certainly is a large enough study, 9,000 people, but there's some criticism that the way the statistics were handled They picked a very, very small isolated group to prove a reduction in hospitalizations and mortality, and the data may not show that in the large group. So we're a ways away here in New Mexico from serious consideration of recommending this drug as an alternative for New Mexicans uh, to reduce hospitalizations and deaths. If we get better evidence or more information uh, comes through, of course, we'll let you know immediately. Next slide. Uh, so, last slide, uh, and we'll open it up for questions. You know, clearly, New Mexico is headed upwards. Uh, we need to be even more careful because the spread of co- uh, Delta is much more robust. Delta seems very effective in finding pockets and families and in workplaces of unvaccinated people and sp- and spreading quite rapidly. Uh, please get tested. Please get treatment if you're positive and meet the criteria that I talk about every week and talked about again this week. And indoors is still not a safe place. I still get emails from people saying there's no evidence uh, that indoor masking helps. That's not true. We have on the medical advisory team website, I think we're over two dozen articles showing the effectiveness of masking, also uh, showing effectiveness of masking in children as well. It does reduce the spread. It doesn't eliminate the spread of coronavirus from one person to another. We've never said that it did, but it significantly reduces uh, the spread of COVID. And we still recommend it. Wash your hands, uh, wear those masks, keep your distance, uh, get vaccinated. If you haven't already, get a booster. I think folks are uh, not really realizing the benefit of a booster at this point in time. And uh, we don't have enough data because boosters have only been out now for, three or four weeks, but we'll start reporting data on vaccine breakthrough cases and those with primary series plus a booster. And I'm gonna predict it's gonna be dramatically lower That it's gonna be rare to see someone with primary series plus a booster uh, getting COVID. I had my booster, Uh, uh, Dr. Parahon had her booster. Uh, Dr. Steinhaus has had his booster. Uh, All of us for the same reason, it's because we're over 18. And we have an underlying condition and so please I, th- I think I think if you've gotten the impression from us that a booster is optional uh, I want to make sure I clear the air on that today. every New Mexican who's eligible for the booster really ought to be actively seeking it and I also you know I, I hesitate to ever predict anything because I almost always uh you know you, there's no way to know the future but I think we're going to see a relaxation. Uh, on booster availability soon and that uh, I don't know when but sometime in the next couple of months we may be getting messages from Washington that really boosters are for everyone. So for now if you meet the criteria please please get your booster shot. I was I was going to hold up my phone with my vaccine record that shows my booster but I know you believe me. I will show you a, a picture of my two grandsons. Not sure if that's coming through or not but they're the ones on the left and the right who are getting their uh, booster shot early ne- or their vaccine next week. And, and now uh, Matt, back to you, Matt, to kind of lead us through our media Q&A. Thank you.
0: Great, thanks so much, Dr. Scrace. Um, so as usual, everybody, we'll just do the raise a hand method. Uh, so if you're new to Zoom, uh, you can you, there's a button that allows you to raise your hand and I can see five members of our media team have uh, have done so already. So as usual, I'll just call on three uh, three folks at a time and we'll go in that order, and um, when I call on you, please do just identify yourself by name and outlet. And, uh, and then finally, just a reminder, uh, no need to cluster questions. Please just ask one question. We'll cycle through the list as many times as we need to until everybody has a chance to ask all the questions that are on your mind. Uh, so with that, we'll start with Chris McKee, followed by Julia Goldberg, followed by Jeffrey Plant. Chris, you are unmuted.
4: All right, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, This again is Chris McKee here over at KRQE News 13. Um, Along this line of boosters, um, there was some discussion here in our newsroom today that perhaps the state may feel disappointed so far in the uptick of boosters. So I just wanted to put it out there in general. Um, Is the rollout of boosters and how many are getting out there, do you think? Uh, sufficient or uh, are you encouraged by it or would you like to see more do you think we can do better Uh,
1: i'll start but laura you can fill in some of the details Hmm. i think if the governor were here she would love to answer that question and she would say i would prefer that everyone already had their booster shot Uh, so that's probably what she would say i think we were you know we've been reporting it in a way that might be a little misleading when we say 10 or 12% of New Mexicans have a booster. That's all adults. And you know, we've only had two or three or four weeks with Pfizer online, Moderna and J&J just coming online now. So we're anticipating an uptick. We have 179, 171, 172,000 boosters so far. So we're, we're a little faster, I think in some ways than when we initially rolled out the vaccine. I think uh, Laura and I were talking earlier today, uh, a lot of people have really appreciated the reminders that the DOH has been texting them or emailing them about getting their booster shots. And so for those folks who've gotten a reminder or two but haven't yet come in, I think uh, those of you who are in that category will see a lot more reminders coming up soon. So I'm happy with where we are so far, but it needs to turn up and it needs to we need a lot more people. Remember, New Mexico was first in the United States in our vaccine rate for a really long period of time, which means we're first to be due for boosters. I'd love to see a duplication of our past performance in that. Laura, what would you like to add?
2: Yeah, um, the only thing I'd like to add is that you know the group that is, is most at risk is the 65 and older group for the boosters. And so far, according to our, our, you know, our information from our data system, about a quarter of 65 and over people have gotten their booster doses. So I think that's that's very exciting. And then now with the onset of Moderna, um, a lot of seniors had gotten Moderna. People over 65 had gotten Moderna. So we hope that we'll see another bump in that because we do really want to protect those who are most at risk of having uh, of hospitalizations and deaths. So the older you are, the more chance you have for that. So um, yeah, we we want to see more. And like uh, like David said, you know, we just turned on Moderna and uh, J&J um, just last week. So I think we're, we're doing as best as we can, but you're right. Let's keep on going on the boosters.
1: I think I saw that we had 40,000 Moderna already, though. So that's very encouraging yes. as well. So that's good. Chris, if, if your real question is, do you want us all to write a story about how more New Mexicans ought to get boosters? Then the answer is an unqualified yes to that one.
4: Solid, thank you, thank you.
0: Thanks very much. And next we'll turn to Julia Goldberg, followed by Jeffrey Plant and then Gabrielle Burkhart. Julia, you are unmuted.
5: Thanks, Matt. Uh, Thanks, everyone. This is Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter Newspaper. Um, Dr. Parajones-Grace, I was hoping maybe you could just um, verify or clarify regarding the 5 to 11-year-olds. It's my understanding that if someone has a child who's almost 12 or will turn 12 in between doses, that they should still stick with the smaller dose and that those are, are smaller based on age and puberty and hormones, not like if you have a large kid not a large kid, but like it, it's not based on weight as some other types of medicines are. But I wondered if you could just talk about that at all and clarify.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'm happy to share with that. So that was guidance we got from the CDC. So basically, let's say you're 11 and in two weeks you're going to turn 12, but you get the the smaller dose, the childhood dose at 11. Then when you turn 12 and three weeks later you get the vaccine, then you get the, you know, the full dose um, but you don't have to restart your vaccine. It's, yeah, they have to make a cutoff somewhere. So, yeah, so you'll get a, the the child, the five to 11 child dose, which is a third of the dose when you're 11. And then when you turn 12, you get the, uh, the full dose.
1: Yeah, but you're right, Julia. There are many other factors at play other than just weight. And uh, one of the things about pediatrics for me that I found difficult was that uh, everything was in kilograms, and you had to multiply the kids' weight by, you know, in kilograms by some dose per kilogram for almost everything. So back then, I didn't like math as much as I do now. And so I went into internal medicine. <laughs> don't
6: and don't get I
5: that sorry, <laughs> how, how many five to 11 year olds does New Mexico have? I'm sorry, Matt. I know that sounds like a second question, but it's not.
1: It's, it's 188,866.
2: 180, <laughs> right? We have that memorized. Yep. We do, do. have that many kids. It's Sorry, me. I
1: didn't mean to scoop you Laura. I didn't know. No, you,
2: you you go, you love that number. So I love that number. Go, <laughs> Thanks
0: everybody. Okay. And next we'll turn to Jeffrey Plant, followed by Gabrielle Burkhardt and then Dan McKay. Jeffrey, you are unmuted.
6: Uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for taking my question. This is Jeffrey Plant with the Silver City Daily Press. Uh, the question everybody in Grant County is asking right now is why is COVID spreading so rapidly here and why now? Uh, the only theory I've heard from physicians is that this surge might be coming from schools and school age kids. Is there any evidence to support that theory? Uh, and by the way, I'm told by the superintendent here in Silver City that most student and staff infections are actually occurring at home and not at schools because schools have robust social distancing and masking policies in place. But is there any evidence to support the idea that, that uh, this uh, high test positivity rate increase in infections is is uh, being caused by school age kids and, and coming from schools?
1: Yeah, Jeff, I'll start. First, I wanna thank you for the A, the great question and be providing part of the answer. And Matt, we could, we should explore whether we should require reporters to provide part of the answer to their uh, their questions. Jeff, it's a really great question. We're, we have spent many hours over the past two weeks trying to figure out what the drivers are for the rise in cases right now here in New Mexico. I think that we're all very convinced that schools are not actually fueling the spread of this. We know that children, can get COVID, they can spread COVID just like adults can. But as we do the contract tracing in schools, uh uh, you know, there's very little in fact the infection rate in schools based on the data the schools collect is very, very low, maybe like four percent. And historical data we have pre-delta, uh, you know, the infection rate in a household was 16%. Uh, there have been papers on Delta that the infection rate is 50% in a household as opposed to the 4% we're seeing in schools with Delta. So I think not, I mean, other things we're thinking about are waning immunity, that's the reason for boosters. And of course, if New Mexico was number one in vaccinating people, then we would be, you know, in the first, the first to get so many people vaccinated, then of course we'll be the first at six or seven or eight months to see a rise in the number of people with potentially declining immunity, hence the, the stronger pitch this week for everyone getting uh, booster shots. I think there's something that I already mentioned about Delta itself, that it's just so infectious. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing is just the, the huge infectivity of Delta and its ability to find and spread amongst unvaccinated people. Uh, school kids are unvaccinated. Uh, They do have, schools have cases, but they, in general, parallel the case rates in the community. They're not a lot higher, which would be another clue if schools were driving community infections as opposed to vice versa. So, yeah, and and one last thing that you sort of alluded to uh, with your quote of the school superintendent is that when the modeling team originally looked at return to school, uh, the modeling that Lanol did appeared to show that kids were actually safer in school than they were out in the community because of the rigorous adherence to masking and distancing and being careful. So I don't think there's anything out there that's implicating the schools as a source of spread. And actually uh, the wonderful program Kurt described to you that we're gonna be working on intensively over the next four weeks kind of is based on the fact that schools are a safe place. And so kids who've had contact with cases um, in school can participate in the program. So I guess the really short answer to question is no. Nope. We haven't seen that uh, evidence that schools are feeling the current up uphill now uh, turn of events.
0: Great, thanks so much. Next, we'll turn to Gabrielle Burkhart, followed by Dan McKay, followed by Michaela Heelan. Gabrielle, you are unmuted.
7: Hello, thanks for taking my questions. Gabrielle Burkhart here with KRQE.
1: I have a question about the 5 to 11 age group. We've seen some national polling where
7: parents have said, you know, a third or four absolutely getting their kids vaccinated, another third are against. Um, Some are still waiting and seeing. Does the state of New Mexico have a clear goal that it's hoping to reach when it comes to vaccinating that particular age group? Like, are we hoping to hit you know, at least half of parents to agree to get their kids
1: vaccinated. Are you willing to say a percentage? Um, You want
2: me to go? Sure. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that we'll have this. We have 54% of 12 to 18 year olds vaccinated. And we're hoping for the similar goal. Um, We know that over time, parents, you know, we have, like you said, the first 30% that just like I'm out there. I want to get my kids vaccinated. And then the other group, that's the 30% of wait and see, that's kind of been how all the kids' vaccines have rolled out. Mm -hmm. And so as people see like, hey, the kids that, you know, the first kids were vaccinated and they're okay, um, we're hoping that, you know, we can provide the materials and, you know, listen Mm -hmm. and, and provide the information that those parents need. To feel comfortable um, for their kids and we're hoping a lot of pediatricians and other trusted voices in the community can share with their communities about how to address that kind of that watch and see space but we really do think that the kids you know they're our next big unvaccinated group and so the more people vaccinated the the less the, the virus can get in and you know, mutate and and spread to to people who are more uh, vulnerable. So, yeah. So I'm thinking, I don't know, 54% would be a good goal. I don't know. David may have a higher goal.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think also um, there are different phases up to this effort, to every effort. There's a phases to the primary series. There's a phased effort to the boosters. There's a phased effort to new kids getting vaccinated. And so right now. We're just bracing ourselves and setting up, you know, half a dozen max vaccination sites for kids and others across the state in the next couple of weeks to handle that part of the volume. Our pediatricians are very geared up and gung-ho to start vaccinating. Pediatricians and family physicians love giving vaccines. They take great pride in their high vaccine rates. So we're just bracing ourselves for folks like my grandkids do you want to see the picture again? Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know the mad rush to come in, and then phase two, and we're doing a survey now uh, uh, on attitudes. I think the Con Alma Foundation is sponsoring uh, to find out what are the messages that that middle third group need to hear. What did what what are their reservations? What are their hesitancies? You know, and and then we'll gear our messaging. It'll, and I'm just guessing it's about safety and, you know, side effects and things, you know, like that. We haven't focused on those today because we want to get the word out that we're, re- we're open for business vaccinating that <clears throat> third of people who really want to get their kids vaccinated as soon as they can. So you'll see it'll change over time, Gabrielle, and, and we'll, uh, <clears throat> we'll tailor our messages to progressively smaller subgroups of people you know, adults, uh, we, our surveys showed that, there, you know, 30% of adults in New Mexico said they would never get vaccinated no matter what happened. And we're now at 82% with at least one shot. So I think, I think over time, those numbers are going to go up. I think as more and more people get vaccinated, it'll become and, and boosted. We're going to go back to a world where mainly only vaccinated people get COVID and get hospitalized or... Um, unfortunately die from COVID and so um, I think it'll evolve over time but now we're focused on the mad rush and that that uh, all the people I know who ask me every time I see them when are my kids going to be able to be vaccinated. The answer is now.
6: Thank you.
0: Thanks everybody. Uh, Next we'll turn to Dan McKay followed by Michaela Helan followed by Jaden Torres. And Jaden, I see three different Jaden Torreses on here. So it's possible that somebody else from your network who signed on. So please just introduce yourself when uh, when we call calling you. Dan McKay, you are uh, unmuted. Hi, this is Dan
7: McKay with the Albuquerque Journal. Uh, can you address whether New Mexico has received its first shipment of the kid-sized doses? And uh, if so, how many we have? Thank you.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you, Dan, for asking that question. We have received our first doses. Um, The doses are coming in three waves. We have a total of about 90,000 doses that are coming into the state. So we got our first approximately 30,000 doses um, last week. And then um, we'll get our uh, next group of vaccines will come, uh, I think, today or tomorrow, uh, November fifth, I believe. And then November 10th, we'll get the last installment for the 90,000 doses. And there won't be any, um, you know, I don't think there'll be any kind of delay in getting more doses if we ask for more, um, but that's how they're rolling it out. So that's why we're asking for patients in terms of waiting, you know, you, you can get a scheduled appointment, but the as providers get their doses, then they'll open up the scheduled appointment. So just keep on checking, seeing, you know, every day we'll get more doses, so. That's kind of how it's rolling out.
0: Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Great. All right, next we'll turn to Michaela Healin, followed by Jaden Torres, followed by Tommy Lopez. Michaela, you are unmuted.
5: Thank you. Um, hi, this is Michaela Healin with UNM and the New Mexico Newsport. Uh, this question is more so to clear the air for parents that I've talked to. Um, one of their concerns is that because the dose for children is smaller, that it'll be less effective. Can you comment on that, please?
2: Yeah, sure, I'm happy to comment. Um, so the, the reason why the dose is smaller is because the children are smaller And they uh, basically tested it on 3,000 kids. And it showed that there was a 90% effectiveness in preventing COVID-19. So they don't, the reason why it takes longer to test children is that they do have to get the dose just right for the kids. And so um, I'm hoping that reassurance on how they did the the vaccine trials um, could reassure a parent that that smaller dose is what was needed to to get that effectiveness, which was ninety percent, um, to prevent COVID. So um, it's similar to the adult. It's a very good good effectiveness rate, and so um, hopefully that that would help parents um, who are on the fence about is it effective? Is it not effective? Yeah.
1: Well, and I think I think to Michaela, it's a good question. I think if you're a vaccine manufacturer. You wanna maximize effectiveness and minimize any potential side effects. So it makes sense that they spent the time that they did coming up with that exact dose. Uh, another example of that though, is the booster for Moderna. You know, there the booster for Moderna is half the dose of the original uh, first two shots, one of each of the first two shots. So I think it, we're learning as we go, but the effectiveness is impressive and actually a very, very low side effect profile, also very impressive for the that's child true. dose of Pfizer.
2: That, that's true. Yeah. And, and it was, it's so good that you asked that question, to you because, um, you know, like I think UNM was one of the sites for the for the research studies, I believe. Right. And so they did have to kind of because children are still growing and developing. They do have to adjust those doses. And so that I think that could be something really reassuring to parents that they actually did, you know, that extensive study. And they're also giving smaller needles out. That's a maybe reassuring thing for kids. <laughs> the needle for the kids' doses is a little bit smaller.
0: Thanks all. Next we'll turn to Jaden Torres, followed by Tommy Lopez, followed by Susan Montoya Brian. Jaden, you are unmuted.
7: Hey everybody! This is actually Stella Sun with KOAT. I thought I was logging hey. into mine, but Hi, I guess Stella. <laughs>
6: Hi.
1: Stella, I think you're on mute now.
0: Whoops! Um, I... Stella, are you with us? I see another person. Um, let me try this again. Let me try something else here. Hi, can can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can now.
7: Hey, so great to see you guys. Um, My question is for Secretary Steinhaus. I'm hoping you could clarify for me in terms of the testing for kiddos. Um, What will that look like? Are these take-home kits for parents? Or are parents expected to bring their kids to testing places every first, third, and fifth day? And then I think my audio cut out for a moment on my end. The program, you said, launches in three or five weeks
3: i happy to answer that, Stella. The way that testing will work in our schools is that they don't have to go somewhere else. They don't have to make an appointment. We will have staff who have been through training and are certified, and they will conduct the tests there in the nurse's office or some <laughs> other private place within the school. So that's how that part's going to work. What What was the other part of your question?
7: Uh, did you say it rolls out in three to five weeks?
6: Uh, it cut out? Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, timing, um, we will have some school districts who will ramp up very, very quickly just because they already have the staff and they, they can find the time to do the training. Other schools across New Mexico will take three, four or five weeks. And based on what we learned from the pilot in Alamogordo, um, that school district was able to get the testing started within about 48 hours. So we're just gonna wait and see, as you know, We have a lot of schools in New Mexico um, and over 425, and this includes public schools, charter schools, private schools. Thank
1: you. Kurt, how many schools did you say we had in New Mexico?
3: Um, Public schools, a a little over 425. Okay. And charter schools, we've got over 150. Great. Okay, thanks
0: so much. Uh, Next, we will turn to Tommy Lopez followed by Susan montoya Bryan, And then it looks like Chris McKee, you raised your hand again. So that'll be the beginning of our second round of questions. Uh, so where'd you go, Tommy? There you are. Tommy, you are unmuted.
7: Thank you guys, as always, for doing this and and giving us all this information. I wanted to actually ask uh, about cases, case counts in New Mexico. And forgive me if this has been asked at all in in the past few weeks, but do you guys see any correlation between Balloon Fiesta and all the out-of-town visitors and any possible contribution from all of that to uh, to the uptick in cases that we're seeing right now? Thank you. Uh,
1: Yeah, this is David, and I'll start. You know, the there are a couple of ways to get at this. One is we know at any given point in time, everybody who's in a hospital with COVID from out of state. And typically that runs, you know, 10 to 15 or 20 people. And almost none of them are ever transferred here from like a Texas or Arizona hospital. They're almost all people on vacation. So, uh, so yeah, we've got some folks who come here. Now we don't know if they brought the COVID with them, did they get it here? We don't always have that information. I think travel in general is what creates and spreads pandemics. The pandemic as we know it in New Mexico, at least back in March and April of last year, started with a couple plane flights. And uh, so there's always that possibility. Uh, the, uh, you know, the previous variant uh, that we had that originated in London, you know, that uh, alpha, uh, you know, that spread across the world by travel and uh, Delta, of course, the same way. So it's just an assumption that people moving about the country and the world interacting do bring in cases. It isn't, we don't have the evidence though that it's a primary driver or like right now it's more of a driver than it's ever been before, at least with, Hospitalized cases, those folks tend to all be, uh, you know, almost all from New Mexico. And the state of origin of cases has stayed pretty constant through the pandemic as well, with New Mexico being well over 90% as well. We've got some epidemiology reports. If I can dig one up, I'll I'll mention it later. That sort of go into that in a little bit
0: more detail. Okay, thanks so much. Next, we'll turn to Susan Montoya Bryan. Ryan, and then I think we'll start that second round of questioning with Chris McKee, followed by Julia Goldberg. Susan, you are unmuted.
7: Hi, good afternoon, Susan, with the Associated Press here in
2: Albuquerque. And you had mentioned the mad rush. So I was wondering if you could tell us, uh, you know, roughly how many thousands of people have already registered for the 5 to 11. And as part of that, Talk a little bit about the rollout. Dr. Scraise, I had heard you mention uh, several clinics that the state is planning. So any details on those clinics, where they'll be and whether
7: pediatricians, eventually all of them will be able to give these shots. Thank you.
2: Go Um, ahead, Laura. Sure. Um, So we do have a pretty robust group of providers, providers who are pediatricians, family physicians, Um, different hospital systems throughout New Mexico, like Presbyterian and their clinics. We have federally qualified health centers who are gonna be giving them out. IHS, uh, the Indian Health Service is gonna be giving out vaccine and also pharmacies. So these will all be coming online. Most of the pharmacies will be coming online on November 8th is what I understand is when a lot of the other federal doses are coming in. And like I said, it's a staggered dosing so there will be um we believe there'll be enough capacity i think initially there might be some weights you know just because that the mad rush of the 30 percent of people who um like to get it first um that that group will be spread out throughout the next two weeks i we believe and so our public health department um has really stepped up as well and they're gonna have some mass vaccination sites in Albuquerque, um, in Las Cruces and Santa Fe in some of the larger uh, locations. And they'll also be doing some school sites throughout. And so we will, you'll be able to find all of those on our registration app. Um, the VaccineNewMexico.org has a calendar um, area where you can look at all the different events. You do have to click Pfizer five to 11 to you know, because otherwise you get all the other kinds of uh, vaccine events that are available. Um, but we are we are trying to do as much as we can to to meet that demand. Um, we're not sure what that demand is going to be yet, but we have a lot of sites. And we did the similar thing with booster doses as well, and uh, where we you know opened up a, a bunch of locations. Um, we did the similar thing for the 12 to 15 and the 16 to 17. And uh, we also have a contractor coming online, um, hopefully by the 15th, to provide other um, vaccination sites that are larger. But uh, yeah, it'll be a mix, but we're, we're hoping we can, we'll be tracking that in the next few weeks to make sure we can meet that demand.
1: Yeah, Matt, I think it's a good idea. Susan asked a great question. I, I have some dates and locations, but I'm nervous that since I got them by text message, I don't want it to be out there in the media. But I, I am pretty sure we've got a Saturday clinic coming up a week from this Saturday in Espanola, Santa Fe, and Las Vegas. I'm pretty sure we've got three Albuquerque uh, vaccine events in the next uh, two and a half weeks as well. So maybe what we ought to do is put out uh, a little, uh, you know, media. Update with those uh, with those dates and times of the bigger ones.
0: Yep, great idea. We'll do that. Okay. Next, we'll turn to Chris McKee, followed by Julia Goldberg, and then Jessica Pollard. I don't has don't think has had a chance to ask a question, so we'll turn to her before uh, cycling through the rest of the list. Chris, you are unmuted.
4: Okay, thanks again. Uh, Chris McKee here at KRQA News 13. I just wanted to ask a little bit more about the situation in Farmington. Um, I know Dr. Scrace, you had mentioned a little bit earlier in the news conference, they're overwhelmed. Um, If I remember correctly, it was 36 people, or it sounds like going to go work there to help out. Um, But I'm hoping that perhaps you can paint a detailed picture about like, what does it mean when they're overwhelmed? I think some of us think to like, you know, TV shows and entertainment where they see doctors running around, hitting machines that are beeping and screaming and stuff. But, I I am struggling to sort of figure out without sounding like a broken record in the media. When we just say, Oh, the hospitals are overwhelmed. The hospitals are overwhelmed. And, you know, we want to help paint that picture without just telling people the same thing. Right. So, any detail that perhaps you might be able to provide kind of outlining what is the situation in Farmington, any kind of descriptors you can offer us. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I, and I really appreciate you uh, bringing that up. I don't, you know, as a scientist, I probably overwhelmed is not like a specific scientific word for the situation or health healthcare. It's an emotional word. I think the uh, the emotions people in the delivery systems across the whole state are feeling uh, center a lot about being overwhelmed but when i say that we have uh, our biggest problem in in farmington what i'm saying basically is that hospital does not have the resources to provide intensive care general medical care emergency services for everybody coming in like they usually would plus that safety valve that we've traditionally had in New Mexico is sort of being, at least during the pandemic, one giant ICU. There aren't other places. Like last December, you might have remembered, uh, Jennifer told us this a couple of weeks ago, last December uh, it was full, but we could still move people and offload rural hospitals. Now we can't do that. So uh, uh, we've, we've ordered up and contracted for 41 additional healthcare personnel to help out and then that federal DMAT team of another 36 people, also we believe heading to Farmington in the next couple of days. So that will give them additional uh, emergency room staff and nurses and other personnel, so that the number of resources they have can at least catch up to the man and uh, uh, to the demand. Uh, uh, more concerningly is it's okay like. Uh, it's a problem if you have, you're short a nurse on a shift, but if you're short an ICU nurse and you can't staff a patient, that means that patient who needs ICU care may have to get it on the floor. I mean, we have dozens and dozens of patients in New Mexico who need ICU care, sitting in emergency room beds right now as well, and so uh, so we are not able to move people to that ICU level of care. In particular or inpatient level of care. So uh, the simplest definition, Chris, is just uh, the, the the need for services has now outstripped the ability to provide services. And because healthcare workers are who we are, we just keep extending ourselves more and more and more. We think like we're the personal solution to the shortage. And it sounds funny but I'm sure Laura would agree that uh, you know, most physicians, most nurses, if they had to work a double shift or a triple shift because someone's life depended on it, would do it. And they've been doing it. And that's why that there uh, so many folks are feeling so tired and, and overwhelmed. Uh, so I think numerically though, um, that, that we also know one last thing, that there's this thing called case mix index. And it sort of describes how sick on average is a person in the hospital. And uh, even taking out all the COVID patients, the patients in our hospitals across the state, every single hospital is reporting record case mix index, record severity of illness. The average patient in every New Mexico hospital, not not including the COVID patients, is sicker than ever in any of their experience. And then you add the COVID patients in, who have, you know, as I mentioned, 19% 19% mortality rate if they're admitted to the hospital. And so so hopefully that fills in some of the gaps. I think I think it's a combination of the need for services, outstripping the capacity and the tendency in general for healthcare workers to reach out and try to do more and more and more. Hope that makes sense.
4: Yeah, it definitely does. I appreciate the the detail there. Thank you.
0: Great. I think next up we had Julia Goldberg followed by Jessica Pollard. And then I see Jeffrey Plant has his hand raised as well. So we'll go in that order. Julia, you are unmuted.
5: Uh, thanks again, Matt. Um, thank you again, everyone. Um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit. That you, Dr. Padajon, you said the medical advisory team reviews all the data on the 5 to 11-year-olds. I read through the briefing document for the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee and tried to watch the hearings, and I'm wondering if Matt talked um, to any degree about the uh, benefit risk scenarios related to myocarditis and pericarditis and if you could sort of share a little bit of that what their thought obviously their thoughts were that the benefits outweigh the risk since you're approving it but just maybe a little bit about the discussion and what you can sort of tell people who are concerned about that thanks
1: yeah I mean I can start um oh. and and Dr. Laura Banks from the university who sort of headed up, valiantly headed up our MAT team and got a special word from the governor for doing so, uh, you know, still heads up our vaccine team. And there are two things they do. One is they, uh, they review what evidence is out there just to make sure that the approach that was taken was sound. And so that kind of gets to the point you're making. Yeah, they did review risk benefit. They looked at you know, they they often, they it's a, it's a decent sized group, maybe a dozen people and they watch the hearings, they assign someone to watch the hearings and listen to the discussions as well and bring that back. I think the other really important purpose they serve, since we do have a pretty robust and reliable process at the federal level now that I'm actually really happy with about this, is they sort of look at the data from a New Mexico perspective. And what's unique about New Mexico that might be different in the study population. Now, in this case, we had kids from New Mexico in the study population, so that really helps. But do our uh, race and ethnicity differences from other states is that something that should play a factor here? And then, and then uh, the other one is, does having the highest uh, social vulnerability in the country is that something that would make a difference here or have an effect? And I think. And in this particular case, with the other vaccines, they've agreed that no, it, that they're effective. And at the same time, they are, uh, you know, that there's nothing about our population that would make us want to hold our hand up and say, we better think this over more carefully. So, uh, so I'm sorry, review, but they listen to all
5: the meetings and everything. Does that mean, Dr. Space, that, that that risk of myocarditis is not, doesn't have any relationship to like higher comorbidities necessarily in that age group that? But-
1: yeah, you know, one thing we're lucky about is, um, I mean, poverty certainly, I think we're number one or two in the country in childhood poverty. So putting on my HSD hat for a minute, that vulnerability is there. But, you know, comorbidities are not as big of an issue in kids as they are in adults. You know, uh, most of the things that we think of, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, uh, you know, pulmonary disease. Making it much, much higher risk, you know, of a COVID hospitalization or death, are way, way, way more prevalent in adults than they are in kids. And so I think that that gives an extra measure of safety. They looked at the myocarditis, and you know, the smaller dose is probably going to help uh, reduce that risk as well. But I think you know, overall, your risk of getting myocarditis from COVID is still higher than getting it from the
0: vaccine. Thank you. Great, thank you. Next we'll turn to Jessica Pollard, followed by Jeffrey Plant, and then back to Susan Montoya Bryan. Jessica, you are unmuted.
7: Hi there. Um, This is Jessica from the Santa Fe, New Mexican. Um,
2: I had to step away from the conference for a moment, so I apologize if this question had already been answered. Um, But I just wanted to learn a little bit more about how tests to stay is as
7: safe and effective as a 10-day quarantine. Um, if anyone's able to kind
5: of give me a little bit more information about that so that I understand.
1: I'll start, and Kurt, if you want to jump in as well. I think this is a study we're doing with the CDC that has a lot of promise. Uh, the uh, the testing at days one, three, and five really does identify early anybody who might be COVID positive. It isn't really a question of, uh, to me, the relative safety of the two. We wouldn't do it if we didn't think both were safe. I mean, certainly if you went home and stayed in your room and people slipped meals, you know, through a, a little small door at the bottom of your door, and also all those sorts of things, spread risk would be decreased. But The other comorbidity of COVID is reduced learning from trying to learn at home. And so I think Secretary Steinhaus here is trying to figure out how do we maximize learning potential of New Mexico kids and stay within that margin of safety that we absolutely insist on to ensure that kids can learn in a safe environment. And so this study we're doing with the CDC and there's three other states that are in on it too, is really sort of groundbreaking work I think that's going to enable us. And remember, it's not the kids with COVID who get COVID, they go home and they stay at home in isolation for 10 days. We're just talking about contacts of kids who've been COVID positive and contacts of kids in school who've been COVID positive. So uh, our EPI team, myself, uh, I think Laura, we all feel like it's a great, safe alternative. Laura's had uh, experience with using this method and other settings uh, in shelters and, and found it very effective as well. But Kurt from the education sort of walking the tightrope and balancing those, those two priorities, did I cover most of it?
3: I, I think David, you covered it really well. I'll, I'll just add that um, all of us in the education world, even though we might have a doctor in front of our name, um, did not get a degree Um, in medicine and so we look to the medical professionals for their advice and the advice we've gotten based on their careful review of the data is that this is a safe way to go. And we even have three um, people from the CDC in Alamogordo right now collecting data and will be reporting back to us. So I appreciate the question about safety. That's what we're all about. And we will continue to monitor it very, very closely to make sure that this truly is a safe way to keep kids in school.
5: Thank you.
0: Thanks all. Um, I think we had Susan Bryan next followed by Jeffrey Plant, Uh, but uh, I think think uh, it's gotten a little confusing only because I think what's happening is folks are immediately raising their hands after they've asked a question. So I apologize if I'm going a little out of order, but we will get to everybody here. Uh, Susan, you are next. Uh, Feel free to ask your question.
2: Thanks again. Yeah, I just wanted to ask Dr. Seinhaus about the uh, T2S program. So can you tell us a little bit about funding for that? Is that CDC?
7: And and what's the price tag look like for New Mexico?
3: Let's see, um, I can start the the grant that we got from the CDC, um, if I've got this right, was about $63,000. And that includes distribution to every school in New Mexico. So if you were a principal at a school you have already gotten notification of an allocation of $70,000. And so every school in New Mexico, no matter how large or small, you at least get enough money to hire a full-time person to help with this. And then we are adding $30 per student on top of that so that that helps with the volume in the school. So that's, that's the way the funding is working.
1: We're also exploring whether we could do this in uh, child care centers as well. And beginning those discussions, we do have pre-K in schools and CDC has said, yep, we're, we're in with you to do this in pre-K in schools, but we'd like to see how that goes before we think about extending it to child care centers, but we're working with them as well. And remember the federal government, FEMA in particular does support testing uh, throughout the state, for anybody where it, the insurance doesn't cover it in almost every almost every single situation. and that could apply here as well.
2: Um, I don't know if I could share a visual because I did um, that that might like just help, you know, wrap people's head around how test to state could potentially work. Is that okay if I do that? Um, it's just a it's just a cool visual. Um, we actually published this data um in in a journal showing how we did a a test to stay type program at the shelter so before we had test to stay if someone became positive in a shelter setting uh, the red is positives um you know we we didn't have a test to stay program before because we didn't even have rapid antigen tests so we had to wait several days till we got someone into isolation area so you could see how quickly you know COVID SPREADS, IF YOU HAVE TO WAIT THREE TO FIVE DAYS TO GET YOUR PCR TEST BACK, WHICH IS HOW LONG THE NORMAL TEST. AND SO YOU COULD SEE YOU COULD GET A LOT OF POSITIVES. AFTER WE IMPLEMENTED THE TEST TO STAY PROGRAM INSIDE THE SHELTERS, WHICH BASICALLY WE RAPID ANTIGEN TEST PEOPLE um, ONCE THERE WAS A POSITIVE EVERY OTHER DAY, JUST LIKE um, uh, SECRETARY STEINHOUSE WAS SHARING, then you would pull out anybody who's positive every two days right and then they wouldn't spread it so you can see that the shelter stayed open you didn't have a lot of positives anymore because you pulled out all the kids in this case of the adults you know but in the case of schools you would pull out any positives so that they wouldn't spread um you know spread the uh spread covid in the I don't know, I just thought that's like a cool visual to kind of imagine how that could happen in the school setting. Yeah, and
1: just one um, last thing too, it's, it is $63 million from the CDC we're getting and the grant is uh, specifically for screening and diagnostic testing in our schools. So it, it, I think somebody might've said 63,000, but it's 63 million, which is a lot more.
3: Thanks for that correction. I was off by one zero there, David. Thank you. I say it's three. Oh,
0: three. Yeah. Thanks all. Um, next we'll turn to Jeffrey Plant, uh, followed by uh, Tommy Lopez and then Jessica Pollard. I think you're raising your hand once again. I think one thing that would be helpful uh, just to all the members of the press corps that are here is if you're, thank you, Jessica. Yeah, if you're able to just lower your own hand after uh, you've asked your question, that's really helpful. I'm trying to do that myself, but uh, sometimes I miss it when I'm clicking the other button. So. Uh, Great. Thanks, Jessica. Next we'll turn to Jeffrey Plant followed by uh, Tommy Lopez. Jeffrey, you are unmuted.
6: Uh, Speaking of missing zeros, I have a remedial question for the benefit of math-challenged individuals like myself. Uh, I was hoping that Secretary Scrace would remind us how to interpret the new cases for 100,000 number in layman's terms and how to calculate that as a a percentage—I I think it was—you you explained this really clearly in a previous update. If you—if you wouldn't mind doing that again,
1: do you want it for a county, Jeff, or do you want it for the state? Because the state's really... Okay,
6: okay.
1: Well, let me start with the state. Okay. okay.
6: So,
1: so uh, let's say we let's say four weeks from now we have ten cases per hundred thousand in New Mexico. We've got two point one million people in New Mexico. So 2.1 million is the same as 21 times 100,000. So we have 21 hundred thousands of people in our state. So you take that 10 cases per day for 100,000, multiply it by 21, you get 210. We do it backwards, we get the 210 cases first, then we would divide by 21. In your county, you take the cases in your county and you just divide that by the number of hundred thousands you've got so and, and I I think I might be able to bring up the uh, that report I think I had it up earlier. Uh, let me just get your county population because I've got it there so uh, Grant, right Jeff,
6: that's correct. One hundred twelve point five per one hundred thousand.
1: All right. So Grant, yeah, uh, you're number one right now, right?
6: That so is correct. Grant.
1: It's 100, a Uh You had four hundred thirty-nine cases in a fourteen-day period. So first, you divide by fourteen. Sorry about this, but it's gonna. Let's just keep the numbers sort around. Of it's gonna come out uh, to about thirty cases a day, and then you got. 27,862 people. So let's just pretend that's 25,000. So you have one quarter of a hundred thousand. Okay. And, and you've got 30 cases. So 30 divided by one quarter. So in your calculator, 30 divide 0.25 equals, that would be about 120,000, which is kind of close to the number you're at. So, uh, if you took uh, and, and since you're on and you're asking a math question, and uh, I'm worried Julia is going to get jealous because she has competition for math questions right now. But 27.862 times uh, divided sorry divided by 100,000 is 0.278. So uh, So that you would just divide by that or multiply, uh, multiply by, hold on, let me, I can do that for you too. So you multiply by 3.59 to convert your cases per day into cases per 100,000.
6: Thank you. I'll be studying that this evening. Okay.
1: I think, you know, Laura and I can work on getting, getting you some CME credits. Uh, for our, our little tutorial there. It is complicated. I think once you though figure out how many hundred thousands you've got in your county, it makes it a lot easier. And you just use that number, write down 3.59, divide that number of cases in our report by 439 and by 14, divide the cases by 14 and that that's all you need. Sorry about
3: that complexity of that. David, while we're doing math here for a second, I just wanted to make sure we had the right numbers. When I gave you the number of schools, I was talking about elementary schools. So the total number of K through 12 schools across New Mexico is a little bit over 800. And then when you add in private schools and tribal schools, we have over a thousand schools in New Mexico.
1: Okay. Thanks.
0: All right, thanks so much. Uh, we it looks like we only have one hand remaining. That's Tommy Lopez. So. Uh, For other members of our press corps, if you'd like to ask a final question, now's a good moment to raise that hand. Uh, Otherwise, we'll probably wrap up with final statements after Tommy's got a chance to ask his question. So, Tommy, you are uh, unmuted. And it looks like we've got one more question following that. Thanks so much.
7: Hi again, guys. I wanted to circle back to uh, booster shots for adults. We've heard some reports that it can be difficult for some people to get an appointment for a COVID booster shot nearby. Either the calendar is not showing any openings when they're in the process of registering or the location of where they might be getting this appointment isn't uh, isn't super clear. Do you have any insight on this? Have you also been hearing this? And could this be an availability problem or some other kind of logistical issue? Thank you. Yeah,
2: um, I can take that first. Um, yeah, we, we have heard that where people aren't able to get it like exactly in their neighborhood um, and they have to go a little bit farther out um it's not i don't think it's an availability issue so much as um you know the majority of people who are giving the vaccine the the vast majority are the pharmacies and so some they they have a limited capacity per day so eventually people can get it nearby their homes we also have a lot of public health Um, DEPARTMENT uh, VACCINE SITES THAT ACTUALLY HAVE A LOT OF SLOTS AVAILABLE AND OPEN THAT THEY MAY NOT BE LIKE SUPER CLOSE TO YOUR HOUSE LIKE A a WALGREENS OR CVS OR SOME PHARMACY Um, AND AND YOU'RE RIGHT THAT IS SOMETHING WE HAVE BEEN TRYING TO TALK TO THE PHARMACIES ABOUT TO SEE IF THEY COULD OPEN UP MORE SLOTS BUT NOW WITH CHILDREN'S VACCINES I THINK WE ARE IN A SITUATION WHERE THERE IS A LIMITED SUPPLY OF MORE LIKE SPACES um, so it's not like you can't get your booster shot eventually, but it may not be as quick as you know as in your in your own neighborhood so that that is something we have been um looking at and and trying to address that yeah um, there there is definitely uh, we wish there were more slots available. Um, for the boosters, we do have mobile vaccine sites. So if it if it's a group like a church or an organization that wants to have a special vaccine event, we still have that available um, through our vaccine mobile teams. Um, but I I totally get that the the pharmacy sites we still need to try to see or or other provider sites you know that are available. It's, there's so many competing demands. Anyways, David. <laughs> I was going to say,
1: too, I think where we want to go is for people to get their booster shots where they get them now, where they get all their other shots now. So either in their pharmacy or their primary care clinic or their public health, wherever you're getting your shots now, that's where we'd like to see, uh you know, other shots. That's where we'd like to see these vaccinations occur as well. So And that's why I think I'm excited about the five to 11 group because I know the pediatricians and family physicians are really excited about this. And there's a big preference actually amongst parents uh, in other municipalities where surveys have been done to get them there if they can. So we're doing everything we can to make those places ready to give the shots.
0: Okay, Uh, it looks like Michaela has lowered her hand, but Chris McKee has raised his. So we'll turn to Chris McKee next.
4: Thank you. I had one uh, follow up question about the um, the testing for schools to stay in schools program. Um, uh, One of our coworkers is dealing with just uh, a kid who had just been exposed and is going to have to stay home for 10 days. The question kind of came up. Is it really going to be 2 to 5 weeks before something like this is really in play, or is it really just going to be? i think we were talking maybe a little bit about this earlier so forgive me if this is kind of a repeat question to some extent but uh, what is really the variable and how long this takes to get going in a lot of these schools is it just going to be sort of proximity to the metro area rural nature or are there any other variabilities that will maybe get this going faster
3: let's see chris um, we all wanted to get up and running as quickly as possible probably the biggest variable is to find a person out there to help do that testing in the school. You may have reported previously that we are short over a thousand teachers uh, and that's uh, by far our number one priority, but this is finding a person that can first of all, be available in the school to give the test, secondly, to take the training, third, to be certified. And then another variable out there is ordering the tests themselves And so we think that is probably gonna happen pretty quickly. And um, the third variable is just making sure that we get parent permissions because children do have the choice. Their parents can say, no, I would not like my child to be tested with a rapid test at school. So those are three of the main variables we've got out there. But I think it's great to hear that um,
1: you know that everybody's going to be excited to get this done and want to have it happen and encourage it to happen and I think the governor in particular is really wanting us to do everything we can to keep kids in school and set up testing and all these other sorts of things as quickly as we can it's a it's a big job to do the whole state but as uh, you heard already I think 62 63 percent of districts already signed up so that's The first app, I believe checks are have gone out and the funding for this uh, has already gone out to those schools that have signed up, right, Kurt. And so I think we're going to be, I think you'll see movement soon and hopefully school districts around the state popping up one at a time as
3: they gear up to do this. And David, that was well said. And I'll just also add, Chris, that um, I met with um, school leaders, superintendents yesterday morning and their reaction was very positive. They're on board, so having their leadership to move quickly is already in place. So I'm happy about that.
4: And just to be clear, these are all antigen tests, right? That are going to be happening.
1: I think most of them will, but I think we're we're going to be using every testing resource we have in the state to uh, do it. And you know, in theory, you know, our actual test turnaround time. We haven't shown that table in a couple of weeks, but it's running 1.3, 1.4 days statewide for all comers. And if you take out the mailing out of state, the UPS ones out of state, it's it's getting closer and closer to just a day. So uh, we can use those other tests to test kids in the morning at school and then notify them the next morning uh, about their results if they're positive. So, It'll be, it'll be uh, all of the ones that we can, uh, all the testing resources we have available, we'll bring to bear to help make
0: this happen.
4: Thank you, appreciate your guys's answers. Thank you.
0: Thanks everybody. I'm not seeing any more hands raised, so I'm just going to give it three seconds. Okay, looks like everyone's had a chance to ask their questions for the day. So in that case, I'll turn to our principals for any final statements they'd like to offer.
3: Why don't we
1: start with Kurt and then Laura, and then I'll just
3: finish up. Sure, um, I'll just add um, that, um, you know, we've, we've said thank you to first responders and frontline workers in the medical field. And I think that that's always appropriate. I'd also like to ask our media partners to extend a big thanks and appreciation to our frontline workers in schools, because most of them, um, have degrees in education and they're there to teach English and and all the other fun subjects. Uh, mathematics is one of them, David, that gets taught in our schools. And um, so we've got nurses, we've got um, custodians. We have all kinds of people in a school who are contributing to helping make this a safe place and following all those COVID safe practices. You know, every school in New Mexico has developed and submitted an enhanced COVID safe plan, uh, what they're doing this year. So please help us thank all those frontline workers in our schools. Thank you.
2: I thanks. thanks, Kurt, for, for sharing that and reminding us of the importance of all those school teachers out there and all the staff keeping our kids safe in the state. That, that's so inspiring. And yeah, I wanna say thanks to them too. Um, I'm just also really excited about the five to 11 year old vaccines that's going to be another layer that protects our kids um, in the schools and so um, yeah just hoping we can start you know getting more and more kids vaccinated and and that will help a whole lot for for school age kids so thank you.
1: Uh, And I'll I'll just end with two things. One is Jeff and others who are interested in how to do the math. I did put step-by-step instructions on how to calculate your case rate uh, per 100,000 using a 14-day case total that you'll see in the county-level EPI report that comes out every Tuesday. But I think more importantly than how to do it is that they're all really high. The whole state basically is still... Pretty red. I think the CDC cutoff for red is 14 cases per hundred thousand. But you know we are seeing spread everywhere, and so the virus is uh, expert uh, in a non-sort of volitional way at spreading from person to person, to finding unvaccinated families and large groups of, groups of people at uh, you know who are unvaccinated events. We talked about this. One of the very first things we saw with Delta was this cluster phenomenon that continues. And so this this high case count is not just one person here and one person there getting COVID, but it's clusters of people in every county who are spending time together uh, getting the virus. You know, out of respect for our beleaguered healthcare system where in many instances we have less resources than we do have uh, the people who need Uh, those resources, please be safe. Please uh, wear your mask, particularly indoors. Uh, Please, please talk to your trusted healthcare person, doctor, nurse, family member, whoever that is, about getting the vaccine. And if you haven't gotten the booster yet, this would be a really good week to sign up to get the booster vaccine. As we see people applying, where in places where there are no available appointments or nearby sites we work on that uh, to meet those needs so please please go in today register for your booster and and get that soon that will help us uh, also fight this pandemic uh effectively and with that matt i i think i've stalled long enough for jeff and others to calculate to uh, cut and paste out the math instructions in the uh, chat for the reporters, I think I'm going to send it back to you to say goodbye.
0: Sounds great, everybody. Thanks, Dr. Scrace. And uh, yes, we will most likely be back next week, but certainly on a continuing and regular basis with these press conferences. So thanks so much for your attendance, and uh, we'll be in touch uh, very soon. Good afternoon.
1: Thanks. Take care, everyone.
0: Bye-bye.